in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And so if you're just joining with us, or maybe it's been a minute, um, we are in a series uh, in the book of Revelation, not through it, but in it. And we're looking at, uh, there's a passage or a window in the chapter, uh, of, uh, or the book of Revelation rather, uh, that Jesus appears uh, to John and he sends seven letters to seven different churches for seven different reasons. And so we came out of Easter in a series called The Risen Christ. And what we did is we looked at all the appearances that Jesus made after the resurrection, before the ascension. There's not many. He was here for 40 days uh, to finish the task that the Father had put before him. And so when there's about seven or eight of those appearances, we should probably pay attention, right? So he makes those seven or eight appearances. And then 60 years later, he says, and one more thing, to seven different churches. He comes again, makes another appearance to John, and has seven different messages to seven different churches. And so we're on church number four this week. After we finish this series, we'll dive back in uh, to our normally uh, scheduled program of Summer of Psalms for five weeks. Uh, And then we've got a fun, uh, really fun uh, fall series coming up on the church. So if you would, read with me. We're gonna start in verse 18. Uh, And this is to the church of Thyatira. And so the angel of the Lord of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and servants and perseverance and your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat sacrifices to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. But behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say this to the rest of you that are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call him, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule with them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of of the potter are broken into pieces, as I have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a really interesting passage and letter. Uh, My mom grew up in a large family. She was the seventh of eight children, four boys and four girls. And being close to the youngest uh, worked in her favor sometimes. Her dad was in the military and her mom quickly that order was the best way, maybe the only way to raise eight children. 
And they had this interesting rule uh, that I remember my mom talked about often. And when mom and dad were away uh, and any sibling did something that they were not supposed to do, that child would get in trouble and the oldest child who was there would share that same punishment with the one who committed the wrong act. The oldest child in the room, at the house, in the vicinity, was held equally responsible for what their younger siblings did. My mom said, like, it wasn't as if they were, they had this alternate, you know, punishment where the younger child got punished or didn't get punished and the older one did. It was that if they did something, they shared equally that punishment. Their rule was, if you're here, you are responsible. If you are here, you know what's right and wrong, and you know what we would tolerate and what we would not, and you are responsible to be me when I am not here. It sounds maybe harsh, but it created order and it protected their family. And I would also say it's kind of what Jesus is advocating to this church. You have tolerated something among you that you should not, that you know that I would not, and you let it slide. It's an interesting concept that Jesus holds the church accountable, not necessarily for what they are doing, but maybe for what they are not doing or what they are not saying or what they are tolerating. Notice again, and we'll go through the passage Of course, Jesus introduces himself again, and he says, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So far, far, Jesus has introduced himself uh, as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the churches, the first and the last who died and came back to life, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, and now with the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and feet with burnished bronze. I doubt very seriously you've ever used those descriptions on yourself when you're meeting someone new for the first time, right? Uh, meet me at this restaurant, look for the one whose eyes are burning like fire, right? But it's the one that Jesus chooses, And it's an odd that our tendency of our eyes would be drawn to this mysterious description of his eyes and his feet and move right past the description of how he describes first, I am the son of God. In this title, Jesus alludes to Psalm chapter two. And notice this, the psalmist says, why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set a king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, and the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The allusions to Psalm 2 are later confirmed at the end of the sermon when he says that he will destroy them with an iron rod as ceramic pots are shattered. If you remember that, it's an explicit quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's 
vessel. Jesus is literally quoting Psalm chapter 2 as he pushes this message to the church at Thyatira. So Jesus announces himself to the church as the Davidic king and again establishes his authority as judge. He alone has the power to judge, to pronounce judgment. His person and his position give him this ability to see through the hearts and the minds of everyone. The emphasis on Christ's role as judge is also seen in the subsequent description, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished broads. This description comes from Daniel chapter 10, where this heavenly man in the prophet's vision reveals this judgment that the enemies of God's people, Israel, will surely face. Notice this in Daniel chapter 10. His body was like a barrel, his face appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like a gleam burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Jesus is using scripture here to describe himself and also to fulfill prophecy. It's incredible that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy even after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The blazing eyes is to focus on the ability of Christ to know precisely and exactly what's transpiring in all of the churches in general and this church particularly. Feet like burnished bronze seem to represent the strength that comes with the ability to crush those who stand against him. I think maybe too often we sometimes draw a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. We see sometimes how God interacts with the people of Israel in the wilderness. And we think that's harsh. Maybe we see these moments where God commands his prophets. Now the people of Israel, he says, line the people up and draw your swords and run down the aisle. We think, what are you doing? And then we see interactions with God as Jesus Christ in the New Testament, where he comes up to this woman caught in adultery. He draws a line in the sand and he says, those who of us who are, have, are sinless cast the first stone. And so sometimes our minds are left with this like just parallel, uh, sometimes just opposite, maybe just bipolar God. But that's not at all who God is. God does not change he does not abandon himself or any attribute of himself in any other way. I think those who see God without a throne of justice, honestly, have not read far enough. When you read into Revelation and he describes himself with eyes of fire, feet burnished bronze, ready to crush those who stand against him, we see a God who's dedicated to righteousness and justice. And here's the thing. If he's God, he has to be. He has to be. He has to be committed to righteousness and justice. But the good news is precisely why he sent his son. Because he's dedicated to righteousness and justice, he sent his son to plead with us to repent and to live as sons and daughters, no longer enemies and aliens, heirs, not slaves. 
This is the good news of the gospel. Without us understanding that God is a God of justice and righteousness, we misunderstand the gift of his son, Jesus. We have to see God as holy and just and unable to stand in the presence of sin. And that's the good news of Jesus, that he didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to love the world and show them the way back to the Father. And I think this is why the description of his eyes and what he sees is so important. His eyes are like torches. He sees everything, the hidden thoughts, the motivations, the inner soul, the sins that no one else in the room knows. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. He says this, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ Jesus. The secrets, he says. So when his eyes are lit with flames, what Scripture is saying is there is nothing that he can't see. There's nothing that's hidden from him. And we know this. We know this, but we, we try so hard to suppress it. Because we want to continue to live our lives in a way that, that indulges in those things of our flesh. The scripture says there's, there's coming a day when it's not just those who have been called guilty in court. Those who have been pulled over or handcuffed and arrested. And he says there's coming a day where the secrets, the thoughts, the motivation, the heart is judged. Because nothing is hidden from him. I want you to know this. That God sees all things, knows all things, and desperately desires to forgive all things. God sees all things, knows all things, and he desperately desires to forgive all this is his message. This is why Jesus came on the scene and his sermon was, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. He's calling people to repentance because he does not want them to face the judgment that they have to face without repentance. Jesus knows all of our heart's motivations and desires, our secret thoughts, our secret deeds, all of the things. He knows it and desperately wants to forgive it. And the way that he forgives it is when we repent and confess. Notice how, again, how he describes himself in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. He says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is an equally valid description, self-biography of Jesus, where he says, listen, I am the one who sees all things, knows all things, and will judge all things, and I am the one who will release you from all of those things because I have died for you. This is Jesus himself revealing himself in these ways. He says, listen, either you will meet me as judge or you will know me as Savior. It's only one of the two. 
You have to choose, he says. And so he commends the church on on their growth, on maturity. And he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And I know that your latter works are exceed the first. They're growing in their faith. They're maturing. By all standards, the church is doing well. They're commended by Christ for their works, deeds, love for one another, faith, service to one another. It seems like they're patient in their waiting, perhaps in their suffering. They're growing. To be honest... This is the description of a church that every pastor dreams of pastoring. You guys love each other. You're committed to serving one another. Your faith is growing. You you have like actual fruit that's bearing. There's growth. There's maturing that's happening. I mean, this sounds incredible. People are deepening their faith. I feel like it's the moment you reach one day as a parent when you pull into the driveway after being out too late, you're tired, your wife's tired, and you decide to test it out. And you say, okay, kids, uh, there's no bedtime story tonight. Me and mom are not coming upstairs. Brush your own teeth. Get your own selves to bed, right? And you do it, and then they do. You're like, Man, this is, this is awesome. This, tomorrow you're mowing the grass, and then my life will be complete, Right? <laughs> Like you see this, this transformation, you see this growth in them happen and you step back and think, God, thank you so much. I think as a pastor, like they're serving one another, they're loving one another, they're faithful to one another, their faith is growing, multiplying. He sees fruit and Jesus commends them on all of these things. It's what we should strive for. And then he speaks and he says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my service to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. He says the thing that he has against them is that they tolerate someone or something that they shouldn't. That thing is a person I believe probably not specifically named Jezebel, but a reference to the story and character in 2 Kings. Just like Elijah confronted the person of Jezebel in the Old Testament, Jesus does it here. Just like Ahab tolerated and even welcomed Jezebel into his home and kingdom, the church is being passive and not confronting sin aggressively. To be fair and to be clear, I do believe that this is an actual woman here uh, that he speaks of because of the rest of the passage, but the spirit of Jezebel could be uh, in a man as well. Just just like we talked about uh, last week, the spirit of Balaam and Balak leading the people of Israel astray and this church astray, there's characteristics that were exemplified in Balaam uh, that that Jesus was... uh, confronting the church on. I believe it was a specific man that was doing this. That spirit could be present in a woman. And just like this story, the spirit of Jezebel could be present in a man. Here, I believe it's specifically a woman that has infiltrated the church. It's about a thousand years after the story of Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel. 
If you aren't familiar with it, you should read it in its entirety. It's found in 1 Kings 16 through 22. You've probably heard some of it before. It culminates with Elijah going against the prophets of Baal on the mountain, and it starts with Ahab. The original Jezebel was the spouse of a weak name, uh, named, uh, need king named Ahab, who ruled the northern kingdom of Israel about eight, uh, 800 B.C., she was a prophetess of a cult and a pagan goddess who sanctioned ritual prostitution and human sacrifice under the guise of spiritual experiences. And at first, King Ahab probably entertained Jezebel at the door of his life because he didn't see any harm, showing a little bit of hospitality to a visitor from a neighboring kingdom of Phoenicia. But ultimately, he invited her into his home and also at a permanent basis. He probably was convinced under, his inf- under her influence that she'd eventually convert to the worship of uh, Israel's God. He maybe have told, has told himself that he was only making a limited concession when he helped her build a temple to Aristotle in the capital of Samaria. But when Jezebel brought 850 prophets from her cult when she began systematically slaughtering virtually all of the prophets of Israel's God, except for Elijah, he probably knew he had been tricked and deceived. But it was too late because he tolerated her and she dominated him. He was apathetic and she led in a way that disregarded God's plan. In this passage, she calls herself a prophetess. She's very spiritual. She might even love church. But it's not because she loves the things about the church. She's not loving the things the church should be about. It's a place to gain power and influence, a voice. There's a few things that we learn from the story of Kings, an incredible character um, profile could be done of Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel. But Jesus calls out Jezebel here, and he's specifically referencing uh, 1 Kings 16 through 22. So who is Jezebel? What is she about? I would say this, uh, Jezebel hates authority, hates it, despises it. Ahab is in control and she hates him for it. She dominates him for it. There are 800 prophets of God. She murders them. There's a man named Naboth who owns a vineyard. She wants it. Uh, He has legal rights to it. So she devises a plan uh, that falsely accuses him of cursing God and the king, forges her husband's signature, and has him killed takes the land. She has complete disregard for legal authority, legal uh, uh, presence, anything. Uh, She tries to kill Elijah by putting a bounty on his head because he speaks with the authority of God. She hates authority. Uh, She can't stand to lose. Jezebel cannot stand to lose. I I would probably say it another way. 
She has to have the last word. Has to. There's something deep in her soul that, that will not allow her to stay quiet. I'll give you the most prime example. When she sends 850 prophets up to a mountain to go to battle against one man, Elijah, and the God who created the universe. You know the story. They, they sacrifice all the things. The prophets of Baal do the chants. They commit all these uh, rituals. They cut themselves. They cry. Nothing happens. Elijah says, soak the, the everything. Soak it all. More water. Bring it here. I'm going to say a simple prayer. Fire's going to come down from heaven. And God is literally going to demolish 850 of your prophets. And you know what she does? Instead of getting, saying, whoa, this crazy display of power and authority that consumes everything that I'm about. Instead of saying, maybe I should second guess this, she says, Elijah, you're gonna die. I'm gonna put a bounty on your head and the first person that brings your head to me on a silver platter, that person is going to be rewarded. She has to get the last word, even when she's defeated, even when it doesn't even make sense. She refuses to say, this is right, I am wrong. She hates correction. Through the life and story of Jezebel, there's, there's multiple chapters here, 16 through 22. I mean, there's, there's a lot of words written. And over the life of Jezebel, there's not one time where somebody comes to her and corrects her and rebukes her. Even in this moment, when 850 prophets of her spiritual cult are dead, not one time when she's rebuked does she say, you're right, I'm wrong. Not once. There's a lot more great stuff. Now, Bible studies uh, that go far more detailed than I have, but the bottom line is this. It's a very evil person that has snuck their way and manipulated their way into power in the church. And Jesus is furious that the church has tolerated it. There's many theologians that point out Thyatira was, was probably a very metropolitan city. Lots of businesses went on. Lydia, who we've heard of, uh, who funded the church and a lot of Paul's missionary journeys, uh, she was a dealer of fabric, purple, textiles, different things. Now, she was very um, uh, affluent. This was her hometown. Many historians point out the business guilds uh, were a common practice, and what it was is a networking group that was centered around sexual immorality and idol worship. And so, literally, to be uh, to be have influence in in the business world, you would have to network in these ways, and they would center around these meals that also included all of these different forms of of adultery against God. So quite possibly, this woman Jezebel is luring the church from the true message and self-denial of these uh, uh, self-seeking pleasures to say, hey, it's okay. You can live your life this way and that way. You can, you can do these things for the sake of your business, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your livelihood, and worship Jesus. They're not exclusive. They, they go together. 
Maybe they were told in their circles, you know, the church, those who would not go. Maybe this church, Thyatira, came up with the slogan first, hey, you do you. You, you do you. I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to these networking things. I, you know, like I believe that, that God has set a different plan for my life here, but hey, who am I to judge? You do you. The church isn't being rebuked for their participation of Jezebel. The church is being rebuked for their tolerance. It's Jesus' word, not mine. That he's condemning them because they tolerated sin. It's a tricky word these days, isn't it? Our culture has kind of set up the conversation so that if we're not tolerance, we're bigots and haters. But I want you to think of sin and people who sin in, in, in two different ways. What we tolerate and what we do not, we put them in the category of believer and unbeliever. We treat these two things completely two different ways completely two different ways. Paul's explicit in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 verse 9. He says this, I wrote to you in my letter. It's a, a letter that we do not have, but he references it here. And he says this, not to associate with sexual immoral people. I did not mean at all with the sexual immoral people of this world or with greedy swindlers, idolaters, for then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is sexually or immoral person, greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, habitually drunk, a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? So we've heard this passage quoted to us many times. Do not judge lest you be judged, right? Paul clarifies this. He says, who am I to judge out those who don't call themselves believers? Outsiders. But then he says this, but for those who are outside, God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. Paul says this. Let God judge those who do not claim to be his children. He will do that. But once someone says, hey, hey, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. We, the church, hold that person to an entirely different standard. At that moment, it's not that we can judge their fruit and their actions, Christ says that we should. And he condemns the church when they do not. Why? Because the name of Jesus is too important for us to drag it through our sin. When we say to the world, when we say to each other, hey, 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 we can have both of these things. 
We're saying to the world and we're setting a standard of what it looks like to follow Jesus that doesn't look like following Jesus. It's the trick and ploys of the enemy to confuse us, to blur the lines. It's not just that we just tolerate and affirm these things. The world wants us to celebrate these things. We have to draw hard lines. And we have to call sin, sin. About a, uh, I don't know, it's probably a year ago, I got an email from a person uh, who, who only used initials in their first name, um, and then there was a last name. I, to be honest, I don't remember what that was, maybe like JR or something like that. Maybe it was one of, one of you. Um, and they said that they moved, recently moved into the area. Uh, they were very complimentary of, they said they found our, our church online and, um, you know, had been listening or whatever and wanted to know before they came if we welcomed and affirmed uh, members of the LGDP plus, you know, like whole thing. Um, so I think it's, it's probably beneficial for you to know how I responded to that. I wrote an email, thanked them for um, their kind words, and I said, to answer your second question first, yes, you are welcome at church here. We would be glad for you to worship with us on Sunday mornings. We hope that exchange is open to everyone in our community, and we hope you feel encouraged and challenged and welcome. For your first question, uh, if we affirm, that word is very nuanced, and I would like the chance to take you to lunch or buy you coffee to explain to you face-to-face what we believe, what Scripture says about sexuality, and how we all must deny ourselves in certain ways. So they wrote back and said, I don't really have time for that until I know your answer, do you affirm, welcome, and then added a new word, celebrate those from the LGBTQ+. I said, again, the conversation is too nuanced. I want to explain to you our point of scripture over coffee or over lunch. I would love the chance to do that. I never heard anything back. I think we have to take a hard stand. And I think instead of just posting on social media, maybe even especially this month, the things that we stand against, we should be able to look people in the face and say, this is why I believe God has something different. God has called me to deny my sin, and I believe he's calling you to deny yours. The culture wants us to tolerate so that we can affirm and then at some points celebrate. There's churches locally just this week posting pictures on, on their social media with pride flags. We celebrate these things. This is, this is not far and abroad. This is in Rollsville. And it happens not just at this moment where we decide to celebrate these things. It doesn't even start with affirming these things. It starts with 
tolerating these things. It starts with you do you. Who am I, who am I to say? This is, why, this is why if I were not a pastor, I would only have my family at a church with the plurality of elders. This is, this is the reason why. Because when I come in and, and one person confronts me on sin, well, then I have the opportunity, even though Scripture would rebuke me harshly for this, right? I have the opportunity and I'm able to say in my own mind, even though Scripture would rebuke me for it, well, it's my opinion versus yours, Right? I mean, that's the way that my flesh would operate. And I'm just saying, that's the way that my flesh would operate because my flesh has already given me permission to do these things. It loves these things. And if someone confronts me on it, the, our temptation, our natural bent is to defend against rebuke, right? But with the plurality of elders, when there's four, five, six men in the room who lovingly come and gently say, hey, you can't do this. Well, then I have to put myself up against everyone else in the room, which I do, by the way. I have four elders that I submit my life to. Then I have to say, am I going to call everyone in this room and say, you have no idea what you're talking about? I know best. I, I don't know that that's able to be actually done. This is why I would only have my family at a church with the plurality of elders, in unless extenuating circumstances. Because we must confront sin. In fact, Scripture gives us a, a place to do this. In this moment, I think it's important, maybe I, I went too far. I want you to understand this in, in reference to 1 Corinthians 5. God calls the church to be intolerant of sin. To be intolerant of sin. And I would even add verbally as a nuance and intolerant of sinners who refuse to repent and call themselves believers. That seems harsh, doesn't it? But that's Scripture's mandate. Cast them out. Treat them like an unbeliever. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 18 when he's talking about the recipe to confront sin? At the end of it, when they refuse to repent, Jesus says, cast them out and treat them as an unbeliever. Scripture's not just advocating that we should isolate ourselves and shelter our lives from anyone uh, different than us. On the contrary, Scripture is saying that we should pursue those lost, desperately lost and dead in their sins, and we should avoid those who claim to know Jesus and still pursue those same things. Paul says that we should absolutely hold people who claim the name of Christ to a high standard. In some ways, we judge their fruits. There's a different standard for those who claim to know and follow Jesus. 
Galatians 6 says it this way. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But watch out for yourself, lest you too be tempted. Scripture instructs us in Paul's letter in Romans and Thessalonians, if they refuse to submit to leadership, cause divisions in the church, we're literally commanded. It seems so harsh and anti-cultural to avoid them. In our passage in 1 Corinthians, he says, don't even share a meal with them. Don't even share a meal. Why so harsh? Because the gospel is that important. That we cannot, ref- we cannot confuse a love and pursuit of sin with the gospel. We cannot do it. It's not that we're better than that person. It's that the gospel is better. We have to paint a clear picture of the gospel to the rest of the world. But to turn this inward, how do you respond when you're confronted with sin? Does it make you angry? Does it make you humble? Does it make you more grateful that Jesus died to pay the penalty for it? Does he make you more zealous to turn away from sin in the future? Or does it make you feel like you need to be more careful, not caught in the future? Do you find yourself scheming to avoid being caught? By refusing to repent, Jezebel declared that she did not belong to the people of God. She, she revealed the fruit or lack of fruit in her life. By the refusal to submit and repent, Jezebel declared that she did not belong to the people of God. And once she made this plain, the church in Thyatira had this responsibility to tell her the truth, that she was not right with God. They had this responsibility to protect the flock. They had a responsibility to exclude her from the church. Instead, they were tolerating And as a result of the church's failure to act, she was leading servants of Jesus away. And so Jesus speaks and he says, to the rest of you who don't hold fast to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I lay on you, uh, I do not lay on you any other burden. This is an allusion uh, back to uh, the council of Jerusalem. If you remember uh, the, the disciples and apostles gather and they are trying to decide um, who can become a Christ follower. Specifically, they're debating, literally debating, uh, if Gentiles can come as uncircumcised. They thought that you had to come through to Jesus through the Jewish system. Instead of no one comes to the Father except by me, right, Jesus' word. They believed no one comes to accept to the Father except through circumcision, except through Jewish law. James stands up and he says, hey, wait a second. I think that we should not make this very complicated. 
if they repent of their sins, refuse to participate in idol worship and sexual immorality, I think that's, that's good enough. We have no other burden. Jesus references these words of James here and says, I place no other burden on you. He says, hold fast. Seek me. Uh, Friday, we had the privilege of, uh, we, we set up in here and we did the, their Roseville Elementary's um, fifth grade celebration. is great. Uh, and Rob Suter, the principal, uh, spoke for a second. He has come and talked to exchange. And he said something um, at the ceremony. He said uh, he was challenging the fifth grade students who are moving on to middle school. And he said, I'm going to tell you something very controversial, um, something that your parents at first might gasp. Next year when you go to middle school, I don't want you to worry about grades. You know, and you could see all the parents go, mm-hmm. Worry about grades. You need to worry about grades. He said, instead, I want, you to, I want you to worry about learning. I want you to seek learning. And when you seek to learn, your grades will naturally come up and naturally flourish. If you're worried about grades, you'll do all the wrong things. You'll just memorize the answers to the test, and you'll just... Do the things, but work, work hard to learn, he says. I think in the same way, Jesus says these things to the church here. He says, hey, listen, I'm placing no other burden on you. Follow me. And we, we want to say, well, what about all the lists, Jesus? What about all the things? Jesus is like, what about all the things? He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you focus on following me, all of these other things, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Place no other burden on you. Follow me. Stand fast. And of course, gives a consequence to Jezebel and those who follow. She has had time to repent, and she has refused. And what's sad here is that her refusal to repent will not only affect her, but her entire family and those who she is associated with. Sin is not exclusive. Those things that were hiding, scheming, covering up, and refusing to repent from will catch up with us and those who hold our hand. Sin is powerful. It does not stop with us. Its nerve endings stretch across all of our relationships. But notice what he says in, in verse 25. Only hold fast until I come. And the one who conquers and keeps my word will until the end. To him I'll give authority to over the nations. They'll rule and reign with Christ. And he will rule with them with a rod of iron, with earthen pots and broken in pieces, even as myself has received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit 
says. Lots of views on the morning star. Um, Jesus identifies himself as the morning star later in Revelation chapter 22. So most likely the reference here is probably Christ himself. And the promise then is that the church, faithful to the calling of God, will eventually receive the morning star. That is this abiding, close, intimate, and eternal fellowship with Christ. Um, there's probably something, uh, you know, in your environment, maybe, uh, that makes your skin crawl. Uh, Orkin, a pest control service, uh, did a survey uh, of what those things are for most people. Uh, pests and rodents. But the best pets and pests and rodents find their way into the cleanest of homes one time or another. But the question is, is do we hate these things enough to do what it takes to get rid of them? One survey that depends on, reports on what sort of pests are in the house uh, found what people will dish out uh, for, a money, for money for an exterminator, uh, meaning they're really serious about getting rid of this problem. 24% of adults, that's one in four, obviously, will pay uh, to kill spiders. Is that you? Do you like have this twitch in your ear at night? Maybe you feel like something's crawling in there. You will tonight. <laughs> Roughly the same number, 27%, will, will pay to get rid of ants. We had that happen. They were Where do they come from? I don't know. Uh, with the next pest percentage jumps to over half, 56% will uh, pay to banish bed bugs. The same percentage, 56, will get rid of rodents, mice, and rats. They get creepier and creepier. Right? 58% of people will pay to kill cockroaches. That's like maximum creep. And then the number jumps again uh, that can bring the house down, termites. 87% of adults, I don't know where the other 13%, what are they thinking? Like some bleach will do that? Like what, what's your plan, man? I don't, to move, like to put it up, you know, 87% will do that. But notice that except for termites, nearly half of adults will live with some very unpleasant creature rather than to pay a professional to get rid of them. I wonder what you're willing to live with in your own heart. I wonder what kind of creepy, crawly things snake around in here. And we just turn the volume down. Get busy. Here's the incredible thing. Is the price has already been paid. We just repent. We confess. And we give it over God. I love what A.W. Tozer says. 
He says, take, God will take nine steps toward us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent, but he cannot do our repenting for us. He's calling you in this moment to repentance. Would you obey? Would you obey? Lord, thank you for this passage, for this challenge, that we would not be apathetic and complacent and tolerant of sin, whether it's others in our community or our, in our own hearts. That we would not despise authority, that we would not uh, reach for the last word, that we would be submissive and humble. Lord, when your spirit speaks to us, I pray that we would not be defensive. But we would open our hearts and our minds and our lives and say, I trust you. Jesus, would you speak to us now? Like David prayed, would you show us the places in our hearts that just don't belong? Would you shine a light on the pests that plague the home of our heart? And would you expel them? You know, I think one of the things that many churches could re be rebuked for today is just a lack of repentance and honesty. The temptation to pretend like we have it all together. But the Christian life, is, is, it's literally the life of constantly slaying our flesh. And if, and if you're not doing that kind of battle, you're not in the battle. That's what the Christian life is. Constantly denying ourselves, slaying our flesh. But somehow along the way, we have convinced ourselves that at some point, if we're Christian long enough, we reach this point to where all, all things in our life, they're great, they're fine, that we got them under control. is not what scripture teaches. Paul says, in fact, he trains his body. He, he trains relentlessly, straining for the goal ahead. Maybe today your strain, your train is to simply take one step of obedience. We often open prayer right after the service. And, and that step of obedience is simply, it looks like this, it's simply uh, getting out of your seat when Jesse asks us to stand. It's simply turning and going to the back and catching someone's eye. They have a lanyard on. You can't miss them. Those people want desperately to pray with you. They don't, they're not gonna ask for all of your secrets. They don't need to know your uh, motivations and your heart and your mind. You can walk back and simply say, hey, listen, would you give me courage to trust God today? But 
I would, I, would, I would go as far as to say, if we can't take a simple step like that to ask for prayer, slaying our sin is going to be very, very difficult. Whatever the Lord is calling you to today, obey Him, respond to Him, reflect and worship Him. Thank mm-hmm. you.